mothers and daughters are a powerful force to be reckoned with. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are diving deep with one badass bitch, the lovely Paulina Pinsky. Yes, she is the daughter of Dr. Drew. I am sure that she is sick of having that follow her name. And we actually get into that in our conversation about what it was like to be raised by a public figure, what is it like to have a dad that is a celebrity, and we're also talking about a bunch of other shit too. Her struggles with an eating disorder, her first romantic relationship, which was rather unhealthy and codependent, like my first relationship, and I'm sure like most of your first relationships, and most importantly, about the relationship with her mother which has been a struggle, also something that I think most of us can relate to. I wanted to tell y'all about this book I've been reading, or rather listening to, and it is called Mother Hunger, How Adult Daughters Can Understand and Heal from Lost Nurturance, Protection, and Guidance by Kelly McDaniel. Thank you, Denise, for this book recommendation. Uh, This book has definitely been bringing up a lot of feelings for me. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. And I really want to have this author on the pod, Kelly. I reached out to her on Instagram, I don't know, about a month ago and said, I'd love to have you on. She said yes. And now I've just been bugging her to pin down a time, but she has stopped responding to me. So if anyone wants to uh, hit her up on the old IG and say that you would love to hear her on the Adult Child podcast, that would be really great. So one last thing before we go to Paulina, I have received many messages from y'all asking how the date went. I feel like if I'm going to tease that I am going on a date, it is only fair that I let you know how it went. So we met for coffee. Now, when we were making plans for the date, he texted me, do you prefer wine or cocktails? And my response was, I don't drink, period. End of sentence. Now, why is this significant? So probably in the first five years of my sobriety, if I were asked that question, do you prefer wine or cocktails? I probably would have just said, you can pick (laughs) and then order a club soda and then hope that he doesn't ask me why I'm not drinking. And then if it makes it to a second or third date, then I'll tell him that that I don't drink. So that was good. And then also saying that I don't drink, period, end of sentence, that is also uh, progress because probably a couple years ago, I would have said, I don't drink, but I'm not weird. I can be around alcohol. I'm not a loser. (laughs) So I didn't say that. I just said, I don't drink, period. And his response was, cool. I don't drink much either. Wow. Imagine that. Um, So we met for coffee. And he was tall. He was not lying about his height. And he was actually even better looking in person than he was in his pictures. When does that ever happen? Never. And 
The date went well. We chatted for about an hour, an hour and a half, and I did not overshare. Now, I brought this up last week. This has been an issue for me. This has been something that I have struggled with. This has been something that I have talked about a lot with my therapist, this tendency that I have to overshare. Um, As I said in the last episode, I think that my vulnerability, my openness is often a gift, however, in the right situations. And I will say that there have been times where it has been inappropriate. And it's interesting, um, Crystal Lampett, who I had on the show a couple weeks ago, she posted this Instagram quote. Let me pull it up. Uh, yesterday, which I thought was so interesting. She said, compulsive oversharing can be an attempt to seek connection, especially when expressing ourselves in the past has been dismissed or invalidated. So for me, I think that there's a few things that are going on with my issue of uh, oversharing. I mean, I think one, yes, is this deep desire to be, to seek connection, to feel connection with somebody when you know, I felt like for most of my life until I got sober, um, I did not have connection and I did feel dismissed and invalidated. Um, and then the other thing, too, that I think plays into it is this identified patient scapegoat role, having that be my identity and being forced to be the one who got sent to rehabs and boarding schools and therapy to talk about my problems as opposed to the family's problems, um, I think I that became routine for me or practice is just this sharing, this oversharing about myself. And so I guess it was about, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, I was on a date. And at a certain point, I don't know what, what brought it up, but I started sharing about my childhood. And uh, at first it was fine. And then, you know, I just kept going, guys. I just kept going and going and just given all of the details. And at this point in time, um, I was aware that this was an issue for me, that I overshare and that it can make people feel uncomfortable. And so finally, I kind of snapped to my senses and I am sensing that um he's not really digging the conversation. And so I made a comment to him like, I'm sorry, are you okay with this? Am I oversharing? Am I making you uncomfortable? And he was just like, well, I mean, this just doesn't feel like a first date conversation. Uh, Stab to the gut with a knife. <laughs> that was the first and the last date with him. But success, I did not overshare on this date. And it went well. Um, I only hung out with him for an hour and a half, guys. So with that, it's okay. I know I've talked to this person for an hour and a half. This isn't my future husband. Uh, I mean, in the past, I would literally be driving home, planning my wedding, doing all that shit. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But I was not doing that. I had a nice time. If he were to ask me on another date, I would have said yes. And then two days later on Friday, I got a text from him and it said that he had enjoyed our time together, but that he did not feel a romantic connection. Um, and he wished me well. And what is so significant about this is that I didn't have a response to this, or I, I guess I should say I didn't have a reaction to this, a physical body reaction, a mental reaction, an emotional reaction. In the past, 
receiving that message, I would go down the rabbit hole of, I'm going to be single forever. There's something inherently wrong with me. No one is ever going to like me. I fucking suck. And that did not happen. Receiving that text did not change in any way, shape, or form how I felt about myself. In all honesty, the first thought that I had was, well, there's obviously somebody better out there for me. And that is a huge fucking miracle, guys. So no dates planned for the near future, but I will keep you all informed on my romantic journey as I proceed. Um, I am just focused on building this podcast and creating the life of fulfillment that I so desire. And with that being said, I just want to give a quick plug for the Patreon. Again, this is where I provide additional content as well as host uh, virtual peer support groups. And as I said, we're going to go through the um, Tion's new adult child workbook. If you're interested in participating in that, the first official day that we're going to start going through the book will be on Sunday, November 7th. So if you are interested in participating in that, or if you just want to give me a little support to help me grow this podcast and reach more adult children, head on over to patreon.com slash adult child. And I do want to just give a quick shout out to the newest patrons. So thank you so much to Naomi, Kimberly, Darnell, Marjorie, Kathy, Jackie, Kristen, MTM, I'm not sure what your name is, but MTM, and I hope I'm saying this correctly, but Hasitha, thank y'all so damn much. Um, And as always, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple Podcast. Do not pass go. Do not listen to this interview until you do so. Thank you and love you all. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce writer, writing coach, educator, Paulina Pinsky. She might also have a dad that you've maybe heard of or maybe not heard of. His name is, what was it again? Is it Dr. Uh, Blue? Dr. Blue? (laughs) Dr. Phil. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Drew Pinsky. Hi, Paulina. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. Um, so I want to keep this about you, but I did just want to start it off by saying, do you want to talk a little bit about the book that you and your dad just ha- published? Beautiful. Yes, please. It is called, it doesn't have to be awkward. I think the subtitle is talking about consent relationships and other hard to talk about stuff. Okay. Cause it this is, is really awkward for me right now with you. So it doesn't have to be this way. No, not okay. at all. Okay, good. Okay. Continue. Just name it and move on. <laughs> but our book, it doesn't have to be awkward is a comprehensive guide to relationships in that. So the way the book is structured is the first six chapters deal with identity. And then beyond that, it's sort of like dealing with friendships, parents and other adults, bullies. And then we get into relationships, mostly because we wanted to take consent out of a sexual context so that kids would have practice with consent before they got into a sexual situation. Um, And so 
the central tenet of the book is TCB, Trust, Compassion, and Boundaries. And the origin of TCB was that starting in the third grade, I was very obsessed with Elvis Presley. And he had his pack of friends, the Memphis Mafia, and he gave them all TCB lightning bolt necklaces. And in the third grade, when I became infatuated with Elvis, uh, he, I, I read a book about it and I was like, mom, like I need this for Christmas. <laughs> and I wore the necklace for 10 years. I prayed to Elvis before I used to pay before ice skating competitions, tests, like Elvis is more deity than, than musician to me at this point. And so Elvis and I have a deep spiritual connection and that's where TCB came from rather than taking care of business, it became trust, compassion, and boundaries. And the idea is if you trust yourself, have compassion for yourself and understand your own boundaries, then you'll be able to trust someone else, offer them compassion and respect their boundaries. So it's, it's a, it's a framework that I think, you know, works for kids of all ages, but our book is specifically targeted for 12 to 20 year olds. That being said, I think this is a a must read for parents in that, it's full of sort of like conversation starters. So it's both available in hardback and audiobook form. And what I think makes our book special too is we have a chapter on navigating substances and uh, one chapter saying something happened to me. What did I, uh, what do I do? And I did something. What do I do now? Mm. And so it's very much an, a, an exploration of what accountability looks like. and you know, obviously the, the navigating substances is like, has all my dad's like warning signs and stuff. But I also was important for me to add sort of like a harm reduction approach of like, if you are going to engage with these substances, Mm -hmm. tune into reality, have people around you that you trust, you know, listen to red flags, check into your body, you know, like sort of practical things because inevitably kids are going to experiment. And so you know, there's, there's just so much in there that I feel like I wish that I had had growing up. And it's really been a, a beautiful opportunity to finally have those conversations with my dad, even though I'm 28. Um, so yeah, that's the book. And it, it's been a whirlwind and a pleasure and a privilege to have written it and been a part of it. Have you heard of TCBY? It's like yogurt. Yes. Isn't that yogurt? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about we should collab yeah you should, should get them to sponsor I'm an email yeah. <laughs> TCB trust compassion boundaries and yogurt and yogurt hell yeah um so I want to talk some about your childhood um well first of all okay so we got two th- well we got several things going on here but we got one you're a tr- you're one of three you're a triplet mm-hmm. and then you also are the daughter of, of Dr. Drew. Mm-hmm. So I guess talk about wherever you want to go with that. But I guess yeah. one question to me would be, when did you realize that your dad was like a public figure and how were you told that? Mm, I love that question. So growing up, my dad, so we, we grew up or we started our family life in a small house in Glendale, California. And my, my dad will be like, you know, we went from being this like cool couple to like all in, like all of a sudden we had triplets. So growing up, my dad was both practicing at my grandfather's 
firm or not firm. What is it called? Practice. Office. Practice that is practice. There we go. Practice. Practice of the practice. Um, he was doing rounds at Huntington Hospital. He was chief of staff at Los Encinas Rehabilitation Center. And he was doing radio five nights a week on K-Rock for Loveline. Mm-hmm. And so he was not around a lot when I was little. There was always like a fleet of nannies or grandparents or whatever. But I just like have very vivid memories of his beeper going off in the middle of the night because he like was on call and had to go to the hospital. And a lot of my memories as a little girl is like going through the halls of the hospital with him and going on rounds because he was mostly seeing geriatric patients. And that's like when I like really like grew to love old people because they were just like so interesting. And like some people you know have problems with old people, but I just think they're just like oracles like they just like have lived a whole life they have so much to share and so like I have one specific memory so at Huntington Hospital we were able to like roam around with him but then at Los Encinas we would stay in the nurses station and one of my that that was the rehab yeah okay and one of my earliest memories was a woman I don't know methadone is what they give you for heroin right yep So she was withdrawing off of, she was on methadone and she was withdrawing off of heroin. And I'm like four or five, maybe six. And I watch as this woman like throws a tantrum, like a childhood like tantrum in the nurse's station right next to me. And I just remember being like, why is that adult acting like that? And from then on, I was like, I'm never doing drugs. Drugs do that to people. So like early on, I like saw, I wasn't like, you know, obviously he wasn't going to like be like, here's my daughter at the rehab clinic, you know, but (laughs) early on, there was a very clear presence of like what addiction could do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so because of K-Rock, we would go to three concerts a year. We go to the Acoustic Christmas, the Inland Invasion and the K-Rock Weenie Roast. Oh, the Weenie Roast. Yeah, the we, we that was the best one. The weenie roast was so fun. Oh, and they have a lot of hot dogs. I love a hot dog. I it's funny because over the years it got like more and more kind of like Healthy. bougie. It was like first year it was like hot dogs, then it was like Mexican catering. Yeah, and then it was like <laughs> you build your own burrito, whatever it was. Um, but so we would go. They put us on a little red wagon and they'd like drag us around backstage and rock stars would come up and be like, your dad is the most amazing man. I know. Listen to him. You know, like they've got tongue piercings and covered in tattoos and they're like, listen to your dad. He's a good man, you know? And so that was my experience throughout my life was like going to these three concerts a year, being backstage, it not being a cool thing for me. It's like, oh, I'm at dad's work now. I have to be polite. You know, it's not like I'm at a concert. Like it was like, I have to go to a concert. Do any of my friends want to come? You know, like it was not a sexy experience for me, mostly because like one, I was very young and two, it was like what I imagine, uh, like a, d- a dental office meeting for a picnic, like that's sort of the vibe. <laughs> and so I, it was always like in the context of K-Rock that I was told over and over again that my dad was like an amazing person. And so it was never like he's famous, but it was like, you should listen to him. He knows best kind of thing. So much so that I think we went to San Francisco for 
probably outside lands or whatever is that what it's called mm-hmm. outside lands yep. and um fiona apple performed and i got to meet her afterwards and i actually have, have the picture yeah. of me and fiona apple wow you're such a little baby how old were you like four or five five And she told me, you know, you're lucky that your dad is Dr. Drew. And she gave me tinsel to from that was like covering her mic. And I kept it like on my bed frame. And and obviously now I'm a huge Fiona Apple fan. And um, so it was always sort of in the context of like, your dad is a good man. It was never like, because he wasn't. So it's, it's been interesting because like over the course of my life, he's, career and public perception has shifted time and time again. Like there was a period of time when he was like the specialist on big brother and like, you know, how old were you when he started, when he did celebrity rehab, how old were you? I was like teenager school. Mm -hmm. And that was like huge vacancy in the house did not see dad at all. And I think that that's sort of like the predominant feature of my dad throughout my childhood is like, he was there for like the important things. He didn't miss holidays. He didn't miss ice skating competitions. He didn't miss football games. However, the day to day, I mean, when I was like in elementary school, he started touring around the country with love with Adam Carolla to like talk at colleges and he could be gone for like weeks at a time. And for me, so I started ice skating when I was five and it was my best friend from preschool was just taking group lessons at the Pasadena ice rink. And, you know, I think my mom just wanted something to put her triplets in so that she didn't have to think about it too hard. And I stayed with the sports. My brother, like one of them hit their head and they were like, I'm out, (laughs) I'm done. Like, fuck this shit. Don't strap blades to my feet. And I was just (laughs) like, this feels right. Um, And so I think part of like, it it definitely started as sort of just like a love of the sport and sort of just like loving performing. And I I do well when I'm the center of attention and figure skating is kind of like an, (laughs) and um, so, you know, a lot of my childhood was shaped by figure skating a big time um, because I ended up being a competitive figure skater for 13 years. And so that obviously presented its own sort of challenges. Um, it's It's been interesting to sort of watch my dad's career because it's, it's, it's only really tangible in that, like when I walk down the street with him, depending on what year it is, you'll get a different reaction. Mm-hmm. So like when he was on HLN, I was walking on the Upper West Side with him after breakfast and some huge guy stopped and was like, hey, Dr. Drew, what's up? Hey, I got some medical questions. I'm taking these steroids. <laughs> and then he was like, can you take a picture of us? And it's like, okay, I'm now the photographer. Like I'm being like relegated to this sort of, you know, assistant space. And it's worse when it's like, oh, we're at dinner and it's a family dinner. And someone's like, Hi, Dr. Drew. I just wanted to drop my card here. I'm a psychiatrist. You know, whatever, whatever <laughs> the fuck it is. I've I've heard all of it and I think it's annoying every single time. Has there been any bad experiences? Um, not yet. Mm. But I imagine in 2021, I'm sure that exists. Check back in. We'll check back in with you, okay? Yeah. Ask me in like six weeks. And then I'll be like, yeah, someone shoved us. Um, <laughs> no, hopefully not. I mean, it's just, it, it, what's, what's sort of been, um, 
kind of mind blowing about having proximity to my dad is number one, my mom will be like, it's like being with Mickey Mouse, (laughs) you know, it's like being with Mickey Mouse at Disneyland Two, there's always a like three second delay. It's like someone walk past, Mm. they'll think about it, they'll do a double take and then they'll initiate. And it's the same every single time. It takes three seconds for everyone to recognize him because he's like, he's been around enough that you recognize his face, but you may not remember his name. It's like, is it Dr. Oz? Is it Dr. Phil? Is it Anderson Cooper? I don't know. So I've learned a lot about like how people perceive celebrity and the sort of entitlement they feel to celebrities. With him being so absent as a kid, did you notice if that had an effect on your mother? Like, did she ever complain mm. about that? Or yeah, do you, do you feel like that had she an impact on, on her? Uh-huh. Yeah, she leaned on me pretty You were hard. like the surrogate, I- you were the surrogate parent. Mm-hmm. But it was like, like I, I didn't have the sort of authority to like do anything. Like I wasn't like the yeah, surrogate yeah. parent in that, like I was parenting my brothers. Yeah. But more like an emotional support confidant. Definitely. I have like vivid memories of her, like driving me to school. And then right before she dropped me off being like, your father has a porn star on the radio tonight. I'm like eight. And I'm like, no, What's like porn? he loves you, mom. What's yeah. Porn? Like, I don't even know what porn is. <laughs> Like at that point. And I just had to do a lot of sort of um, emotional propping sometimes. And two, like, so my mom and my relationship is so. Yes. I want to get into all of that. Yeah. It's endlessly fascinating to me because so my mom was pretty much alone raising triplets and she had two nannies and, you know, she had support, but I guess I haven't really thought about like how that impacted how she treated me because there's so, and my mom and I talk about this all the time, but like there's one time that she slapped me in the third grade because she used to braid my hair every day. So backstory on my mom, she like was a bikini model in the eighties. She went to college later in life. Her parents wouldn't pay for college. They would only pay for booty, beauty school. Booty school. Booty school. Yeah. <laughs> My mom went to booty school. Um, she got that donk. Um, yeah. She, so she was like obviously raised and under like, she was a woman in the eighties. You know, her body was how she felt. She found a class mobility. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a competitive figure skater. I'm the only daughter and your dad is, you know, my dad wasn't home. Yeah. Yeah. And so she used to braid my hair, French braid my hair every day so that I could wear it at school, wear it to ice skating and be done. Mm -hmm. And I did not want a French braid. And I also am like manifesting early signs of like anxiety and like OCD that would eventually manifest into an eating disorder. And so like, I'm a little terrorist, you know, during this experience (laughs) and, you know, the carpools waiting out front and I have to go to school and my brothers are in the car and I'm not in the car. And she just like lost her shit and hit me. And of course I immediately start crying. And then I don't, I don't think she immediately started crying, but she cried after I left and like called the teacher and was like, I need you to know that this happened. Like, I'm so sorry. And she was like, it happens. It happens. Um, and so, you know, thankfully my parents didn't believe in spanking or anything like that. So like, that's the only sort of hitting trauma I have. And it's, you know, pretty light compared to most people. Um, but I think what I haven't done is sort of looked at that situation. And it's like, what pushed my mom to the point 
of hitting me. And it's like, oh, her husband wasn't home. She was raising triplets and I needed to get the fuck to school. And so she was pretty um, stressed out for sure. Um, And so I think sort of the way in which like it got kind of, my mom's a producer. She's very recently come to that title. And she even said to me, she was like, I, you know, I didn't know that I was a producer, but you know, I produced you. (laughs) And I was like, boy, did ya, boy, did ya. So my mom, you know, starting from age five to eight to 18 would drive me to and from the rink, would pay for all my coaches, would buy me all the skates, would take me to the dressmaker who would measure me every six to eight weeks. And then when I was 12, she would drop me off at the nutritionist every week. So there was a lot of money and time invested in my figure skating career. And so my mom and my relationship entirely focused on ice skating, like entirely focused on ice skating. And when I was little, I think that was good for me because it, I, w- I went to a super competitive like K through 12 school that my dad also went to, you know, my, my, my brothers are also in the class with me and I was never um, told I was smart. Mm. I was always told that I was pretty. Mm. And I think the ice skating also feeded into that. And because of that, I didn't feel confident at school at all. I would like, I remember my school was very like math and science focused. And so I remember sitting next to Chris Wynn, who was on his 12 timetable and I was still stuck on three and I couldn't finish the math minute. And, you know, so much so that my third grade teacher gave my mom a math wrap cassette tape to listen to on the way to ice skating. So it was like two times two is four open the gate and walk through the door. Like literally like ringtone. That's my ringtone girl. (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, you know, not excelling at school, but the one thing I always excelled at was having boyfriends. I was boyfriend queen. And now I'm like, Oh, was I sort of hyper fixated on romance because my dad wasn't home and that's sort of like, probably. Yeah. And I mean, that would chase me through my twenties. So I'm going to say, yes, it did. (laughs) And so I think, I think also in fourth grade, like the next year after third grade, is that how it works? <laughs> the next year, fourth grade, yeah. the next year after third grade. Okay, okay. Good to know. Thanks for that. <laughs> hey, anytime, anytime. I've been wondering um, about that for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I cracked the code. Here I am. No, I love it. Don't worry. Um, and so. I had a teacher who was like, listen, she's never going to make it through this school. Mm-hmm. Her head is in the clouds and she needs to read the news. And I think my mom said something along the lines of like, okay, I'm paying you. So what are you going to do about it? You know, like, but instead this teacher was kind of like, she should drop out now in the fourth grade when I was like 10. Um, and so it was just, it's just like, geez, like, I'm sorry that I'm not like, Maybe I can't pe- say the alphabet backwards. I don't know what they tell Were you me. told that? Did you know that when that happened? My mom told me. Of course she did. Yeah, because no boundaries. No boundaries whatsoever. It was like, so what's actually funny about that is that day on the way to ice skating, she was like, we're going to listen to the news. And she turned on the radio and it was the first day of the Scott Peterson trial. And <laughs> our family friend was his defense attorney. Mm. And I was like, oh, people I know defend bad people. Well, he can't be bad. He couldn't have done it. If my friend is defending him, he didn't do it. 
Um, so yeah, I'm coming into childhood with like, I was a pretty little girl. So I was like told that I was pretty all the time. And I had this highly competitive sport. My dad's not home a lot. And I was third grade horny all the time and cute, you know, 12 year old me. I'm like, I'm not chubby, but, but I'm chubby for ice skating. And there comes a point where they're like, okay, either you have to lose weight and get better or like, we're kind of done here. And so that's when I was introduced to my childhood nutritionist. Yeah. I want um, to how that came about. I mean, I, I imagine you're burning a shitload of calories doing figure skating every day. Oh yeah. Um, well, was so it just, were you just, was, was it overeating or just like natural or you were just like in a weird spot where you hadn't grown yet or just the doesn't really matter. I was totally normal. Yeah, I yeah, was yeah. totally normal. And it was just the environment I was in Southern California and figure skating. And, yeah. you know, it was uh, not uncommon for friends of mine to be like hospitalized for anorexia, you know, and that's sort of like weaved into the fabric of the sport. And so it's, you know, I had like a little baby tummy, you know, like kind of like how a fourth grade girl does, you know, it's like, she's still a baby. Um, but it was more of like, prior to, prior to be yeah. tell- being told this, were you already conscious of your weight? When did that become, when did that, that thought, that idea, that fixation, like, do you remember that being a part of the conversation prior to this being sent to the nutritionist? It was entirely part of the conversation. Um, most, it most specifically started in the third grade. Um, Cause I, I, I remember staring at myself in the glass door of my parents' living room and noticing that like my nipples had puffed up a little bit. And I was like, oh, my body's changing. And then that's kind of when the storm came. And it was like the moment in which I was no longer one of the boys. I was singled out in this way. And I fought it fucking hard. It was a push and pull between my mom and I where like, like my mom would like go to the ice rink and tell like, oh, you know, Paulina's trying to lose weight. And like my ballet teacher would be like, don't drink soda. And like, another, you know, they'd, like everybody has advice. And so it was like, you know, my, my, my mom would feed my brother something and then she'd feed me something different. And, you know, midway through the meal, I would try to sneak something off their plate. And she'd be like, damn it, Paulina, like, why are we paying for figure skating if you're not going to try? Mm-hmm. And so when I was 12 was kind of like the tipping point when I first started middle school. And what had happened is sixth grade, obviously everyone's hormones come and it's a party and it's a miserable party and nobody wants to be there. However, I went from being like, you know, the queen bee, always had a boyfriend, always gossiping, knows all the secrets to enemy number one. And all the girls in my class decided to have a different reason to be mad at me. And so I was shunned by the sixth grade class. And at the end of it, I was like, mom, I think I need to go. I'm depressed. I think I need to go to therapy. And she said, girls are jealous. And then she took me to the nutritionist. And that's like when the fixation with weight really began. Like, I think I was able to sort of fight it in terms of like, not really internalizing sort of like the crusade against my body until the nutritionist, um, mostly because one, I trusted her and two, um, she gave me the tools to dismantle my body, right? Like she gave me the techniques to lose weight. And it it got to a certain point where like my mom and I have always butted head since day one. And we're both very strong-willed people. 
And it got to the point where she was no longer allowed in the nutritionist's office with me um, because she would go in there and be like, she's eating fries. Like, I don't understand. I'm paying for this. Like, why is she eating fries? And I'd be like, mom, like it's my treat meal. You know, like I'm allowed to eat them sometimes. And, and eventually um, mom was no longer allowed, which I think is a red flag. If you're paying for a service for your child and you're not allowed in the room, that's a problem. Um, and so middle school is sort of like the nexus of the eating disorder nation uh, taking over my body. I started with anorexia and I slid into bulimia. So I proceeded to see that nutritionist until I left for college. And it was really hard because she was both like a sur- surrogate mother for me and that like one that I got along with. And it's like, okay, I had to pay for hers. How genuine is this relationship? And two, I remember at a certain point, she was like, I'm going to put a cookbook together and you're going to be the kid on the cover. And because like the one thing that I really excelled at was losing weight. I became very, very good at being thin. And so then it was less about me being pretty. It was more about being skinny. Right. And so the first thing people would say to me is, how do you do it? Childhood friends of mine went to this nutritionist on my recommendation. And like that still haunts me to this day. Unbeknownst to me, I perpetuated disordered eating in a way that like, obviously a a sixth grader doesn't really understand, but it still scares me that my results were so quote unquote compelling that other people went to this woman and gave them their money. So then, you know, like going into high school, I really struggled with like perfectionism um, in that, you know, Uh, that's like when celebrity rehab started my dad started getting bigger in the popular consciousness. He's out of the house even more. And I'm just like committed to ice skating. And this is when, this is when the shit gets nuts. So my childhood nanny would, do you know what Zanku chicken is? Yes. So she would go to Zanku chicken. She would get me a chicken shawarma plate, no hummus, no pita, double chicken, double salad. And she would deliver it at school for me. I would eat half of it for lunch. And then I would eat the other half of it after cheer practice. And that is all I ate for at least six months. Were you like sneak binging and purging on the side? Seventh grade, I threw up one time. Okay. And I was like, oh, I can do that. Um, And it wasn't until high school, um, kind of around the time that I started experimenting sexually is like the, around the time that I started binge eating, mm-hmm. um, which I think is related, but I was a big fan of, uh, buying pints of ice cream on the way home from school, eating it in the car, throwing it away and then throwing up in secret. But it, it's interesting because like, yes, it was like this tantalizing secret that I had, but also it was like my deepest shame and the first person I ever told was my high school boyfriend, such a codependent relationship. Literally, he would pick me up, take me out of bed in the morning, like at the height of our relationship, wake me up, literally like walk me to the bathroom, drive me to school, walk me to and from all my classes, take me home or to his house, have dinner with him. Then before in bed, he would brush my hair and my retainer. So he was both my boyfriend and my dad. Is he free now? Is he single? Is he- <laughs> I don't know. So this is this is kind of the the tantalizing uh, topic that I haven't really talked about publicly, but I'm excited to. Um, so my first boyfriend, like I had, you know, all my little boyfriends or whatever. But my first like love, um, 
he was Muslim. Can we get a name? Can we get like, a, I, I give all of my guys like nicknames. You got a nickname. Like I've had like Mr. Old enough to be my dad. I had like ball boy. Mr. Looks great on paper. Mr. This has to be the one. What do we call this oh. guy? Mr. Brushes my retainer. <laughs> yeah, we'll call him that. Mr. Brushes my retainer. I still yeah, wear my retainers he... every night and I'm 32. That's good. That's why your teeth look beautiful. Thanks. I, I lost my mouth guard under my bed somewhere. So I need to find it because I grind my teeth in my sleep. Me too. So I'm stressed out. Um, so Mr. Brushes, my retainer at night, um, was a year older than me. And he you said he was Muslim. Muslim. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so when we first started dating, he was like, we can't tell anyone. And I was like, no, like, I'm not going to do that. Like, you have to tell your parents. And so... For the first year of our relationship, it was like very much, you know, we were chaperoned outside of school and like all that stuff. And um, then it like quickly became codependent mess in that like, I remember, so my sophomore year, I was in Little Shop of Horrors. I was cast as literally a streetwalker um, <laughs> and I was a dancing streetwalker and he bought tickets for every night of the show just to watch me do like four seconds on the stage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I would just remember feeling so suffocated. I was like, you're coming every night. I'm not even really on the stage. Like I don't understand. And so there was sort of this like deep obsessiveness about him that was both tantalizing and also crushing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that then, then, you know, I'd always heard my dad say, your brain isn't ready for sex until you're 16. And so I literally waited until I was 16. Um, I think it was like the first Friday night football, our one year anniversary. I lost my virginity on my bedroom floor and the condom broke. (laughs) And so we had to drive to Walgreens and ask a stranger because underage kids weren't able to buy plan B at that point um, for plan B. But Early on in the relationship, you know, we divulged our sort of self-harming tendencies to each other. He was like, I'm a cutter. And I was like, mm-hmm. I'm a bulimic. And it was like, of course oh, you guys found each other. Of course you found right, each other. Right. Exactly. So it was like, the, the I just remember so vividly, like being on the landline, which being on the landline, saying this into the landline, I'm like, I'm a cutter. I make myself throw up. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anybody heard, they said nothing. Um <laughs> And I just remember being like, okay, like if you don't cut, I won't throw up, you know? That's love. (laughs) Yeah, that's true love. And so we both, then it became like hyper fixation with each other, right? It's like, oh, you're the salve, you know, like sort of the the high intensity thing that is first love. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, so we ended up dating for two and a half years. He went off to college. It was very hard for me because my entire social life was him. him. Yeah. So I, I ended things with him and that created one of the worst emotional experiences of my life. Um, he, he pretty much went off the deep end after that. And he like, when he was home for spring break, showed up at school and like, quote unquote, surprised me. And Oh, and you know, my high school class is 92 kids, two of which are my siblings. Mm -hmm. And so the entire courtyard is watching me. And I was like, listen, Mr. Brushes my retainer every night. We need to go off campus. So we went to a Panda Express. 
And then we sat in his dad's new Mini Cooper. And he proceeded to tell me that he was thinking about suicide, that life wasn't worth living anymore, that, you know, I did this to him. And he had also told me that he had started therapy that day. That day. <laughs> I was like, did you tell your therapist this? He was like, no, I don't know him. Yeah, well they told me yet. that I should come and do this and tell you all this. That's what their suggestion was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Let me dump this on my ex-girlfriend. This sounds great. Um, but part of the sort of, I think, what upended his life. I mean, he didn't die. He's okay. But as far as I know. But he believed we were going to get married. And part of the reason we had sex is because he was, and, and so did I, I was like, yeah, I'll convert to Islam. Yeah. You think you're going like, to be forever together. Of that course. seems. Yes. Yeah. I was like, we're gonna like, when I move to New York, you'll find your way to me, you know, whatever it is. Like, even then I was like, I'm moving to New York. And I very much in high school was like, yeah, I'm going to convert to Islam and move to New York. Like that sounds right. <laughs> and obviously like one of those things did not happen. Um, and you know, I remember one year I fasted one day for Ramadan. I was like, I could do this. I could like, do I've been, this. I I've do been doing this. this. I've been practicing all <laughs> yeah. since I've been 12. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, Ramadan is year round for me. Um, and <laughs> so I called my best friend and I was like, you know, Mr. Retainer man said all these things to me. And, and mind you, a few months before this, my best friend's sister's best friend, who like we all idolized, committed suicide. And so I'm like, suicide is obviously something that I need to like, take seriously. Like, what do I do? And she was like, call your dad. <laughs> she was like, your dad is probably the right person to talk to about this. And I was like, oh yeah, you're right. Um, so I remember calling him. He was like, you know, do you know the name of the therapist? Like get the name of the therapist. I can report this immediately kind of thing. And so the next day was a Saturday and I was like, Hey, like, what's the name of your therapist? And he was like, why? And I was like, I, I just want to know. And then he didn't tell me. And then an hour later, I get a huge text. That's like in Pasadena, there's this bridge called, uh, it's a Colorado street bridge, but it's nickname is suicide bridge because during the great depression, people would jump off it. And so there's these like huge, like metal spikes on it. And then now they added during COVID, they added another fence. Mm. So clearly forever that it's clearly the, the, still the, it's the spot it's still the spot. yeah it's still the hot spot <laughs> and so he sent me a text i just walked up and down suicide bridge not knowing what to do he pushed me to this point he's so manipulative he's such a fucking uh. so manipulative so and so then at that point i was like oh i have to tell his family so i text i message i facebook messaged his brother and then i called his mom and was like, listen, Mr. Retainer Man said these things to me. I just, I don't know what to do. And she was like, thank you for telling me and hung up. And then uh, she came to my graduation to make sure that he wasn't going to come. Wow. Like it got to that point where it was like obsessional. And for years, I mean, even now it's like, I feel like I can't break up with someone or they're going to threaten suicide. Mm -hmm. And that isn't, I'm obviously not responsible for someone else's feelings and actions, but like that sort of like lack of boundaries slash feeling responsibility for somebody else has like followed me since that moment, which makes sense. Like I was 18 and the love of my life that I was thinking about converting Islam for is threatening suicide because it's not working anymore. I'm going to have to have you back on because there's like so much more that I want to talk with you about. But what I really wanted to touch upon 
I want to talk about what did repairing your relationship with your mother look like? Mm, That's such a good question. It was really fucking hard. When did you come to the realization of, I guess, the impact in the role that she played in your eating disorder? So for me, like, yes, there was some sort of self-awareness that I was throwing up, right? Like I was able to confess that to my first, my high school sweetheart, but there wasn't sort of, uh, there was no integration of that sort of concept until I went to college and was taken out of my context and like sort of forced to see myself for the first time. And it was like, oh, other people at the dining hall don't or haven't been told since age 12 exactly what to eat, right? So they can kind of use their body as a guide and they don't have to, you know, like obviously they're the people with like portion issues. Like everyone has issues. Food is such a hard thing. It's like rare to have like someone who is like a healthy relationship with food. Um, But from what I could see, it was like, oh, other people know how to feed themselves. I don't, you know, Saturday night I get a pint and, uh, you know, eat it, throw it up and be like, oh, this is a public bathroom. This is not a normal practice. Like I clearly feel shame about it. And so freshman year, spring break, I went home and my mom and I went out to dinner. And like the first day, she didn't say anything about what I was eating. The second day, she didn't say what I was eating. And I had just started therapy. I put myself in therapy. Um, after. Oh, sorry. No, not yet. So that day, my mom said something like, are you really going to eat that? And it 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 started the longest binge purge I've ever had. Like I threw up like seven times in one day and I was like, wait, 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 wait. I was like, this is, this is not right. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And so I went to Barnard Health Services and they gave me a list of referrals. And the first person on the list was my therapist of 10 years. And she was, her name's Catherine Baker Pitts. And she was phenomenal in that she, you know, she brought feminism into my my praxis, my praxis, and also like into sort of the eating disorder recovery model. And that, you know, it wasn't about like regaining weight and being a specific weight and meal planning. It was like, what's going on with your family of origin. Mm -hmm. And so it was sort of the first time that I was like forced to contextualize my family and like talk about them. And so that June, so that was probably like March of 2012, June of 2012 is when I told my mom about my bulimia. Uh, We were driving back from dinner. She's talking about the personal trainers that she like they've known for 10 years. And they're like, when we went out to dinner with them, they they got fries, but they split it. And I was like, well, I'd rather have an overeating disorder than an undereating disorder. And she was like, you don't mean that. And I was like, no, I have. Like I've had an undereating disorder. I've been throwing up since the seventh grade. And, And then, you know, the famous line of, well, get your teeth checked, um, which I ended up writing about. And that's like a whole other trajectory and a whole other. So that, that experience also strained my relationship with my mom, obviously. Um, and so the summer after college, I was living at home. I was working as a hostess in my godfather's restaurant. I was like slamming in and out on the way home, you know, in my car alone. And I'm fucking my high school sweetheart who like, will only, this is TMI, but I'll say it anyways, like, will only let me blow him, but will not touch me. And so it was like very much like a clear dynamic of like who was holding all the power during college was really real. Like I was angry and it was, you know, 
18 years worth of like pent up anger. I'm coming into like body positivity and like internalizing the concepts of health at every size. And meanwhile, you know, my mom is an empty nester for the first time. She started a podcast where they, she would bring on clairvoyance and they would talk to the dead. She's trying to like do her own thing. My mom is not the greatest listener and has a lot like ADD up the wazoo. And so it was a lot of like, just, just like speaking and not being heard for a long time. Um, and so eventually my parents did come to therapy with me and that sort of facilitated the first sort of like, you know, snot pouring out of my face, cry session of just like, it hurt, you know? And I think once they were able to see that, they kind of like understood that like, though it was being expressed as anger, it was coming from a place of pain. Yep. Hurt. Um, a lot of the healing had to do with me doing healing on my own mm-hmm. in a certain way. Like I, I got to a point where it was okay. Like my mom's never going to believe in health at every size. My dad's probably never going to believe in health at every size. Like, what does it mean if I believe something that my parents don't believe one and two, what does it mean if they never move past this point? Like, will I be okay with myself and them? Mm -hmm. And so I think I really kind of doubled down on sort of my own self-discovery and my own self-work because I got to a point where it was like, oh, my mom's never going to change. I can try and try and try, but I'm still going to have to like, eventually it came to the point where like, they don't comment on what I'm eating anymore, but that's after like, years years of just please don't talk about my body or please don't talk about what I'm eating you know like setting boundaries over and over and over and over and over again and you know kind of building the skills to cope with Mm -hmm. them Mm -hmm. um and so I think ultimately it kind of got to a point where like my mom and I I don't know she's there's always been this sort of like reversal where like I'm the daughter I mean I'm the mother and she's the daughter um but there's always been this sort of understanding that her tolerance threshold is very low. Mm. And that means that I'm probably not going to get that like over consuming maternal love that I crave. And so it's sort of like, it's an ongoing sort of grief process where like, sometimes it's just like, fuck, like I wish you would just fucking listen to me. Um, And then there's the other of like, okay, well, she expresses love in the way that she knows how to. So it's like Mm -hmm. random pictures of me as a baby on Facebook Messenger sometimes, or like she just bought, we're going to New Orleans in a couple weeks and um, she bought me a wig, you know, like showing love through gift slash money is her love language. Mm -hmm. And so I would say it's both working on my own expectations and also just making peace with myself. And also just like, as I've gotten older, what I need from her has changed and what has been super interesting. I think honestly, like part of the reason we're doing so well right now is because she's back in that producer role and she doesn't have control over me, but she has a say, you know, when it came to figure skating, it was like, She was there when they put highlights in my hair in the fifth grade. She would yell at my hairdresser if they cut too much hair off. She had such a heavy hand in every single aspect of my life that it was like I was her clone, which is, you know, part of being a child of someone is like you are in their image in a certain way. But I think 
my mom not having the sort of same resources growing up, I I definitely Mm -hmm. became sort of the receptacle for like, I mean, when I was born and she said this over and over is like, she held me in her arms and was like, I'm going to give you everything I never had. And she truly did that. So, so, so the short answer is one doing therapy for 10 years two letting her produce me again, but on my terms, now she's producing my dad full time. And that's their whole relationship is work. They very much love each other, but like they have a work dynamic that is a smooth baby seal and it is slick and ready to go. Um, And so she's sort of, she, her role as producer has shifted, which has allowed for our relationship to not solely be about the performance, the, the outcome, the product, whatever it is. Um, so it's good right now. It's good right now. I mean, the thing is like with my relationship, my mom, it's there are good days and there are bad days. And lately it's Mm -hmm. been good days. And I think part of it is like this whole book tour and, you know, every time, you know, my dad sort of like brings me into the public sphere. It's like, is she going to do it? Is it going to be okay? Like I'm, I'm kind of considered the loose cannon in my family. (laughs) Like I'm the weird eccentric one with like 23 tattoos and a buzz cut. So they're like, we don't know what she's going to (laughs) do. And so I think I like to think that throughout the course of this book tour and like this entire experience, I've stepped up and performed in a way that makes them feel proud and so it's sort of like recapitulating the dynamic of like ice skating performing and setting me out for competition and letting me go and so during the Megan Kelly interview my mom was in the other room listening and apparently she like really was so panicked when Megan Kelly was like so your mom right, yeah asking her about- and my dad yeah. said like well don't you feel compassion for her now and I was like yeah and apparently my mom got up and almost fainted She like almost fainted because she was like so nervous and anxious and also just like not anticipating that reaction because like, I don't know. I think that the writing, it doesn't have to be awkward. Like I've always been a compassionate person, but now I'm sort of trust, compassion and boundaries have been such a good guide for like all of my relationships that I would say that writing this book with my dad, though the process, the process of writing that book could be its own podcast, (laughs) but it included like me calling my dad every six weeks being like, I'm worried our relationship is only work related and like sobbing on the phone <laughs> to like, you know, my mom producing a live stream with my dad and I on it and then being like, Paulina's great. And so it's, it's sort of a natural dynamic for my mom to like watch me perform in a certain way. And so I feel like that's why our relationship is working right now is because like, we're all sort of in service of this larger performance and it's all like a language that we're used to in a certain way yeah maybe not the healthiest (laughs) no it's definitely not it's it's funny because I I was dreading this fall so like I had no idea what was going to happen I had no what does it even mean to like do all this stuff this is the most concentrated time I've had with my father in my Mm -hmm. entire life and so what does it mean that you know to a certain extent, like him bringing me onto this project is like a vote of confidence in my skill. But also I feel like his way of sharing his love with me of work. <laughs> and it's like, dad, we don't have to work to spend time together. But I don't think that my parents understand that. Well, 
The thing that really helps me, and one thing that I really make a big emphasis on on this podcast, just remembering that we're all just a product of our upbringings, right? I just mean like with your with our parents, though. You know, like that they're yeah. they're just as oh. much impacted by their upbringings oh, yeah. as we are, and um, oh, for sure. I think that most most of for us sure. don't get the blessing of like breaking the cycle and kind of you know pivoting and and looking at this stuff. I mean, most of the time, like that's what's so awesome is like you're going to have the opportunity to, to break that cycle and to not kind of pass on that dysfunction to, to your kids. If you want to have kids. I do. And I hope so. I, I mean, I've had enough therapy at this point, even though I'm like still in therapy, I'm probably going to be like a lifelong. Why not? I don't candidate. understand. Like, what is the point of like, why stop going? Like, there's always more to dive into. Oh, always. And, and it's always the moment that you feel most reticent that you're like, oh, this is the day that I have mm-hmm. to go. I don't want to go. That means I should go. There's going to be something juicy that comes out of me today, you know, but yeah, I really appreciate that question because I feel like I've written at it in so many different angles. Cause when I was in college, I wrote, um, get your teeth checked, I read that. <laughs> but you can guess what yeah. that's about. Um, and so that was sort of like my first stab at trying to understand the situation, but more than anything, I think it was first time writers, there's always a tendency to, to put a bow on it. Right. It's like, and then we lived happily ever after. And mine was like, and then my mom and I worked on our relationship. Um, you know, and the truth of it was like, we couldn't barely be in the same room together. Now that was in 2013, you know, eight years ago, I think, I think the main thing that's just changed is my expectations. Like, I don't, I don't expect her to be somebody she's not the mother that I want her to be. Yeah. It's like, at this point I can mother myself in a certain way. So where can people find you? Do you want to be found? I, oh, I would love to be found (laughs) when you fall. I will catch you. I'll be waiting. Um, don't know why that song popped Yeah, I don't head. know. I'm trying Anyways, to make the me. <laughs> it felt right. Um, social media, M-I-Z, Piggy, 111, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, my website is paulinapinsky.com. I am available for writing coaching. Any sort of writing need you have, I'm your gal. Well, this has been amazing. We'll definitely have you back. And I will make sure to put all your shit in the show notes. So thank you so much. Beautiful. This has been amazing. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, you're welcome for allowing you to hear something that can help you on your own journey. Thanks again to Paulina. That was amazing. Check out the show notes for ways to get in contact with her and also a link to uh, her new book. It doesn't have to be awkward. Um, You can also find links to my social media. I am at Adult Child Pod on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, Also, I would love to hear from you, see show notes for ways to contact me. I do just want to say there are several of you that I still need to get back to. Um, I am just trying to figure out (laughs) all of this time management shit of doing this podcast while also doing my other job so I don't get fired. Um, Next week, I have TJ Woodward back on the podcast to talk about his new book, Conscious Creation. Uh, This book is really fucking good, 
And this interview is really fucking good. So I'm super excited for y'all to hear that. I will see you shit shows next week for another episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I am super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise. Let it all go